Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Welcome to part two on the episodes that we're doing on Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm is rather hard to delve into, and I, I realize that getting into the, the details of Anselm uh, may be difficult to follow, but I think it's well worthwhile because it's really Anselm who's laying the groundwork for what is to come in terms of Western philosophical tradition in uh, the pursuit of uh, an absolute that ends, I think, in Hegel, and Hegel in many ways projects back, looking backward to what in fact I think is initiated most clearly in Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm gives us the doctrine of divine satisfaction, which the Western theological tradition has understood the death of Christ, and it's come to have a very specific meaning in the interiority of God that Anselm is working out within human interiority that uh, I think closes the meaning of the cross of Christ to what it really means in the in the New Testament, that uh, Christ is defeating evil, he's overcoming death. Uh, none of that is, is uh, what Anselm is pursuing. He's describing the death of Christ as accomplishing the will to reason rightly. And what he means by reasoning rightly is a very specific thing, and that's the details that he's covering in the monologion and then the proslogion. You almost have to, and that's what I'll do a bit in this talk, is you have to begin with the monologion to understand how it is, or he begins with the proslogion. If you think of the monologion as beginning beneath the ontological divide, and he's going to see the way clear in, the, in his long effort in the monologion, but then with the proslogion, he begins on the other side of that divide. As I've said before, he's writing for his friends, for the monks at Beck, who are, uh, they're going to use this as part of meditations, and we should remember that they are monks, that they are, they're mystics, but they're mystics that are developing a rational tradition. And so our, the delineation that we often make between Western rationalism and mysticism, I think, in fact, is a, a misunderstanding. You know, Western thought, if we think of it coming to its conclusion in Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, we see, in fact, the apparent fusion of reason with mysticism. But I think what Hegel is accomplishing is really He's returning to the roots of where Western thought begins, that nothingness, darkness, absence, that's not his innovation. That's already there. It's implicit in Western thought, and it's clearly implicitly there in Anselm. Maybe most, most clearly in both his doctrine of the atonement and in the monologion, in the proslogion, uh, he's already advanced to in the argument to such a degree that we may not see it, except that even in the proslogion, he's going to end that argument by clearly acknowledging that what he's attained to is darkness and nothing, and yet he still sees that darkness and nothing as an absolute. 
I've said this before, but the tool that he's using is going to say that it is the equivalent of an argument like that of Scripture, and it's going to be an alternative to Scripture. And so like the argument of Scripture, it serves as its own revelation, but it's a revelation that arises within the mind. It is aimed at a phenomenological experience. That's the mysticism, the, the argument itself. If you just think of concentrating on uh, that which the greatest thought that can be thought, uh, he really is trying to escape the bounds of reason through reason, through a kind of reified voice. But let me take up then with the uh, monologion, and in following the monologion, hopefully, then we can begin after that, then we can come to what he's doing in his curdus homo, in uh, his understanding of the atonement of Christ. The word, he says, through which all things were created is not their likeness, but their true and simple essence. While in the things created there is not a simple and absolute essence, but an imperfect imitation of that true essence. So words without true content and the word that is without any nameable content are the only thing we're left with, that we never arrive at you know, any kind of ordinary picture of the world or ordinary language. We're always dealing in these absolutes. The word that is sought does not contain any propositional content. It does not say anything other than itself. And this saying which is below, you know, it's the ground for sensuous significations of ordinary words, of the voice, is itself ineffable. And that's the word that we're in pursuit of. So when we think of Anselm as a rationalist, yes, but he's ultimately a mystic because his rationalism takes us to mysticism and his reason is built upon an apophatic notion of the essence of things. That is, it's not just that, oh, we can't say these things. He needs this nothingness as a part of reason. The mind, therefore, might be most appropriately called its own mirror, the mirror in which it sees the reflection of that which famously it cannot see face to face. The reflection of self is self-production. And what Anselm is seeking is to be self-identical with the self, in which you close the gap of separation within the self. You struggle to close the difference between I and, you know, think of the Cartesian cogito, I think, and therefore I am. You're going to close the gap of separation between those two eyes. Any notion of me, myself, and I, or any notion of, of any ordinary thought, that's what he's wanting to get rid of. In turn, God comes to be equated with his self-reflection or self-expression. Quote, are we to conclude then that if there were no creature, that word, big W, would not exist at all, which is the supreme self-sufficient essence? Or would the supreme being itself, perhaps, which is the word, still be eternal being, but not the word? If nothing were ever created through that being, for to what has not been and is not and will not be, there can be no word corresponding. He concludes there cannot be being apart from expression. As, quote, he would not understand or conceive of anything, he would be thoughtless or conceive of nothing. And so what Anselm is doing, he literally says, what we're doing, 
what I am doing now in this argument, in this ontological argument, in trying to get at myself, the articulation of myself, the pursuit of self or memory or self becomes the final reference point. If I can get at this essence of expression, for since the human mind is not always thinking of itself, though it ever remembers itself, it is clear that when it thinks of itself, the word corresponding to it is memory. Hence, it appears that if it always thought of itself, its word would be always born of memory. For to think of an object of which we have remembrance, this is to express it mentally, while the word corresponding to the object is the thought itself formed. So we're in the supreme being memory, the, which the Father always conceives, gives birth to its word, the Logos, the Son. This perfectly is conceived. The human mind is not always thinking of itself, and so it does not properly duplicate true being, and so we have to duplicate true being by giving a pure attention to ourself. The supreme wisdom always thinks of itself and so gives birth to the word, but the imperfection of the fallen mind is such that it does not express itself to itself, and so there is a failure of memory and word. The goal is to achieve a true image of supreme wisdom, which, quote, always thinks of itself just as it remembers itself, and from its eternal remembrance, its co-eternal word is born. So Anselm is picturing the inner workings of the Trinity, you know, the, 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 the word of God enables God to rightly remember, and, and he's picturing the drive that we have is to repeat the self so as to continually give birth to the self. God so remembers himself that he is his own memory. And so in rightly remembering we give birth to ourself, we arrive at our true essence. He says, quote, for it is proved that the Son is the true word, that is, the perfect intelligence, conceiving of the whole substance of the Father, or perfect cognition of that substance. While the Father is his own being, having his own essence or substance and cognition, the cognition of this essence in the Father's memory comes back to him through the Son. What he's describing is that we become our own father. We become the sons of the father. We arrive at the generation of ourselves. Think here again of Freud's picture of the Oedipus complex, that we would be our own father. Anselm's quote says, quote, What is more obvious than that the more earnestly the rational mind devotes itself to learning its own nature, the more effectively does it rise to the knowledge of that being, and the more carelessly it contemplates itself, the further does it descend from the contemplation of that being. The quest, in the words of Jacques Derrida, the quest of presence, assumes the possibility of thinking a concept signified in and of itself, a concept simply present forethought, independent of a relationship, to language, to a system of signifiers. That's precisely what he's doing. In other words, it's the, the, the thought is pure presence, that we use language to arrive at pure presence. And the goal Derrida dubs as a transcendent signified. 
something which in and of itself, in its essence, would refer to no signifier, would exceed the chain of signs, and would no longer itself function as a signifier. There is the reified notion of language that passes out of ordinary language, the reified notion of the word that you arrive at a pure breath, pure life, uh, a kind of existential experience. And so the argument from the monologion, you know, which is Anselm's cosmological argument, to the ontological argument. You know, in the monologion, he begins with a comparison of difference between what exists, actually existing things. He begins thus, a horse may appear to be called good through one thing, but it, because it is strong, and through something else because it is swift. And he argues that there must be a best, greatest, and supreme existent among all that exists. Through this process of comparison between existence, it's established that there is one existent that stands out from the rest. Now, to leave it at this would be to maintain a difference between existence, including the supreme existent, and the ground of existence. The supreme existent, and some might say, and he does say, is not an existent at all. To leave it at this would be to maintain a difference between existence, including the supreme existent, and the ground of existence. The supreme existent, and some might say, is not an existent at all, but this, if he said this, this would defeat his program of comparing existence, which he's done up to this point. What he needs to do is in some way close the ontological gap that looms in saying that God is the ground of his own existence, which would mean that the gap between existence and ground is contained within God. He's going to step back from what Schelling and Hegel do, but he's approaching the very same thing. He reverses the notion of existence in order to say that only God exists. Quote, thus the spirit exists in its own wonderfully unique and uniquely wonderful way. Indeed, it would seem to follow from the foregoing that this spirit is, for some reason, the only thing that exists. Other things that seem to exist, in comparison, do not exist. Though his argument in the monologue depends upon judgments of differentiation among existing things, entailed ultimate act of the will is that judgment which reaches the, the point of absolute difference, which is in fact a denial of difference at all of, of itself. There, you know, this is Derrida's point that you, you can't have an absolute comparative difference. That's an uh, oxymoron. Anselm says, where other things do not exist and God alone exists, we have passed from comparison to an incomparable difference. So there is a difference so great that differentiation or difference and all its rational categories are undone. Quote, the spirit which exists is so wonderfully singular and so singularly wonderful that it is comparable to nothing. And all else that exists is made the marker of nothing. And the will to carry out the envision ontological reversal is not itself numbered with that which is nothing, but rather it has here made the leap toward a fusion with its vision.
That is, the thought and thinker have become self-identical, overcoming the gap through the will, overcoming through the will the gap of difference, which Anselm equates with sin. And so Anselm's purpose is not merely to establish the existence of God. This is already established on the basis of revelation. His purpose concerns the status and power of thought and its ability to attain to God, not on the basis of faith, but through reason. His goal is to get a firmer vision of God so that the rational mind, unaided, might ascend to, the, to a point beyond faith. So where the cosmological argument of the monologion is a bottom-up argument, the ontological argument is a top-down argument. He feels great satisfaction when he begins the ontological argument. It begins from the other side of the gap of this ontological difference. Through identification of a particular human thought with God, he has achieved identification between thought and its object. In other words, he's incorporated human thought into the name for God, and that's the, you know, the greatest thought which can, can be thought is his name for God, which makes the thought itself part of the absolute necessity it names, that we bear the name of God in our thinking. I will take up more here next time with Anselm. We'll work out a bit more of the closed nature of his argument, and then we'll turn to how this unfolds in a picture of the atonement that has, you know, we often think of Anselm as a kind of secondary personage between Augustine and Aquinas. But in many ways, I think Anselm bears a heavier influence and will have a larger Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.